0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Becky Gray, who is the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation and is a frequent guest on our program, is with us this week. And uh, we're going to test Becky's insights and knowledge on what's going on in the 2019 legislative session. Uh, We've got lots to talk about, about redistricting, and, of course, the typical problems that we always have with the economy, uh, especially health care and, um, uh, and, of course, the partisanship that we've talked about uh, from time to time about uh, how we sort of get everybody back on track and working together. So, Becky, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, thank you for being here. And uh, we, we like to tap your experience at the General Assembly and uh, find out exactly what's going on down there because you spend a good bit of time. at the. I General spend Assembly.
2: a lot of time there. I have great job security. I spend a lot of time <laughs> at the General Assembly working with politicians. Nobody wants my job.
1: Well, we always talk about, you know, uh, giving alerts, especially, you know, we just had the hurricane situation come up and we spent a lot of time warning people about what can happen. The general assembly is sort of like a uh, like a hurricane, and uh, but we don't send out alerts every day. I mean, we don't say, you know, boy, there's things down there going on that <laughs> that could be endanger your well-being.
2: Well, and the thing about it is too, you know, hurricanes usually are come and gone within a few days. This general <laughs> assembly just goes on and on and on. I mean, here we are, you know, in September, and they're still in session.
1: Yep. Uh, and I always like uh, when they have the so-called regular session and the long session. They're both about the same length. I mean, well, and
2: the long session, they weren't kidding. It's really a yeah. long session, January to here we are, September, and really no end in sight.
1: Well, the time, well one of the big tie is the budget impasse. Uh, the governor has vetoed the budget, but it seems like the, the General Assembly is sort of working around that in certain areas by exempting uh, or going ahead and passing legislation for certain parts of the budget. Is that a good practice? Is that something that uh, will service long over the long term, or should we just handle the uh, budget impasse?
2: Well, you know, Don, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's not. The preferable thing would have been for the governor not to veto the budget or for some of the Democratic members of the Democratic caucus to override that veto and put that $24 billion package of spending in place. However, that's not the situation that we had. Uh, A couple years ago, the General Assembly, I think, was really smart in that they passed a law that said, if we have a budget impasse like this, we'll just revert to last year's spending. So we're not looking at a government shutdown. We've got that going. Going on. But there were some things in the budget, some increase in pay for correction officers, for state employees across the board, uh, for SBI, ALE agents, and things like that, that they thought was important enough to get into place. So... They've done this kind of work around, if you will. Now, the General Assembly passed that. The governor signed it. So those have gone into place. And the other thing about doing this kind of piecemeal, you know, one, one way to look at it is when you have that $24 billion budget, there's a lot of stuff in there. When you do it piece by piece, it's more transparent. Um, you know we know exactly what those raises are going to be we consider it individually now to do that through every line item in the in the budget is probably impractical just because of the time that it would take but this has been this has occurred because and been necessary because of this budget impasse that we're in and it's just the way we're going to get things done it it appears
1: well and of course this brings up the cry for the uh idea of the line item veto because this is apparently almost all over the Medicaid expansion issue.
2: Well, that's what you know. the mm-hmm. governor has said. Even during his campaign for governor two years ago, he said his number one priority was Medicaid expansion. As this budget has come down, he said really as far back as November that he would veto any budget that did not have Medicaid expansion. So that has been the line in the sand. The General Assembly has said we absolutely agree something needs to be done to address the health care needs. They don't believe that Medicaid expansion is the way to go. So hence we have this impasse all over the governor's insistence on Medicaid expansion. What do you think about
1: line item veto? Uh, On both the state level and the federal level. Well,
2: I mean, I don't know that that's a a bad idea. I think it's important to know why the governor or the president or anybody else would veto a particular budget. You know, like he vetoed the budget, outlined several things of the reason why, but the main thing was not having the Medicaid expansion. I don't think a, a line item veto is a bad idea. Other states have that. It doesn't seem to gum up the works too much.
1: Now... The other thing that has uh, become more and more apparent is that we are going to have a big surplus, uh, and I haven't heard a lot of talk about uh, where that's going to go.
2: Well, Senator Berger, actually Senator Berger and the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, have suggested that they take part of that surplus and return it to the people that sent it to Raleigh. They're talking about some sort of a rebate for taxpayers doing that with some of the money. It, you know, wouldn't be a lot of money, $100, $150 into each household kind of thing or some of the estimates that are being done. But I think more than anything, it sends that message that this leadership understands where that money comes from and what to return it to the taxpayers. And, of course, Don, you know, one of the other things that happens with the surplus, this unexpected money, is it should be used for non-recurring expenses, things like perhaps some capital improvements um, and also putting money into the rainy day fund.
1: Well, I was getting ready to say, we, of course, you know, we, we can't forecast hurricanes, but we've had our share here, and, of course, uh, things could be worse but uh, the rainy day fund is gonna be taxed again.
2: Yeah, and in in this budget, that we're still in this budget impasse, one of the things was, was to shore that back up, to bring yeah. it back to about that $2 billion level, which is about 10% of our budget, was the largest that it had ever been in state history. And as you mentioned, this is gonna to continue to be a need And um, Don, you know, as you mentioned, we don't know when the next hurricane may come or the next storm, but we know that it's coming. And it may not come by way of a natural disaster. It may be some sort of an economic downturn
1: that's beyond our
2: control, but something we would need to deal with.
1: I I think the term rainy day indicates that that fund is used only for weather, but it is to cover also downturns in the economy. And uh, there's more and more talk that we are in for at least at least a mild recession, if not uh, something a little heavier. But most forecasts are it's going to be relatively mild, but mild recessions always affect North Carolina a little bit more than other states.
2: And, you know, imagine if you would that we do go into a recession and there's not enough money in the coffers. You know, businesses are stressed. Individual taxpayers are stressed. People may be out of work. You know, during that time, we want to have money set aside so that we can pay teachers, so that we can pay our police officers, so that we can make sure that the prison guards are being paid. I mean, there's a lot of functions of state government. We want to ensure that those are done. If we have that money set aside, then we can take care of those things without going back yeah. to the taxpayers who are stressed and still let government go. It also puts us in a position so that we come out of a recovery much stronger. So there's there are hundreds of reasons why putting this money aside is a good idea and not many reasons not to do it.
1: See, I'd like to change the name of that, rain you know, not call it Rainy Day Fund, because that does imply it's more weather- And it has been used for weather, right. extensively, but maybe call it something like the Safety Net Fund or something well, like that. Well, you know, yeah, that's, that's because a good idea. I, I think it does uh, give people a false, sort of a false feeling that it's used for things that are only related to weather. And, of course, about two-thirds of the state says, you know, I'm not as interested in that as I am some of the other things that faces from day to day. Well, okay, so, so what's your forecast here of when this impasse is going to end and how it's going to end? Or is it going? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know... Uh, is it, First of all, is, is it going to end?
2: You know, Don, it may not. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, the General Assembly was really smart a couple years ago in that they put a provision into law that said, if we don't have a budget, we'll just revert back to last year's spending. Now, what that does, it doesn't allow for some of these pay increases. It doesn't allow for the teacher pay increases. The Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina is hoping for a new building. There are lots of spending in that budget that is being held up that won't occur. But the basic functions of state government and the things that we had last year would continue to be funded. It's about $2 billion less in spending if you go back to last year's. And again, you know, we can just put that $2 billion into a rainy day fund and see. But there's a lot of good things in that budget that I'm hoping the it, it, really the holdup at this point is the Democratic members of the General Assembly who have heeded Roy Cooper's insistence that they not vote to override his veto. So, you know, as this thing drags on, also as we are recovering from this storm, anticipating things coming up, I'm hoping that the General Assembly and the members uh, will look, at, look to their constituents and make a decision of what's best for the constituents rather than towing the party line.
1: Another thing that's uh, sort of concerning here is we're talking about uh, uh, the possibility of a mild recession, or maybe even worse, but certainly a mild recession over the next uh, 18 months or so. Well, taking $2 billion out of the economy can speed that along. Right. I mean, that that's money that is in circulation and uh, when we say in circulation, when it's spent, it's spent again and again and again. And and so, not spending that $2 billion will probably likely return um, a less of a surplus the year after. Uh, you know, the economy is so interesting because when you push in, it's like a balloon. You push it in one place, it's going to pop out another.
2: Right. And that, you know, these unintended consequences or looking on down line and trying to prepare as best you can. Um, Is something that I think the General Assembly has done really well. And, again, a reason why this budget needs to move forward.
1: So, again, what's your forecast here?
2: I'm hoping that after this most recent storm that we've had, after many of the members of the General Assembly go back to their districts, I'm hoping that the message from constituents is, you know, we're all North Carolinians. We need to move forward with this and that they will then vote to override the veto. Because, you know, Don, one thing, in all of these districts, there are Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated voters, and even people who have not registered to vote, that those members of the General Assembly have an obligation, took an oath to represent all of their constituents, not just their party. So what I would hope is that the the voters and the constituents' interest will take a precedent over the party line and the party line direction.
1: Our guest is Becky Gray, and we'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers. We're going to talk about redistricting and recent court uh, action on that. When we return with more, you stay tuned.
0: You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right, sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. Some teens have trouble just making it to graduation.
2: Like, my brother, I was raising him. I was taking care of him when I was three, four years old. There was no possible way for me to come home, watch the kids, give them a bath, then cook dinner for everybody and clean and still get my homework done. So i probably say with yeah. you because there's so many kids, yes, that yeah. you, you have to grow up at real at fast. At young age. Real yeah. fast. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if there's nobody there to do it, you got to do it. Like she said, you can walk down the hallway and see me. I just have a
1: smile on my face. On the inside, I'm like really, really crying. and I'm hurting because like, well, how can I manage to do all this at such a young age? So it's a mind thing. You have to have your mindset that, hey, if this is what you want to do, go for it. Find some more support and do what you have to do.
2: Hopefully, I'll be able to study and be able to get my stuff done, but just not knowing what's going to happen in the future, that's what scares
0: me. That I'm hoping that I'll be able to maintain my grades and stay in school. Give your friends the boost they need to graduate. Go to BoostUp.org and send a message in your own words. Brought to
1: you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council.
0: We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with Becky Gray, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. Uh, John Locke Foundation, of course, is an advocacy group, um, and, uh, and uh, we always like to have a little bit of uh, perspective from both sides. The John Locke Foundation is probably leans on the conservative side of issues. and. Um, the, of course, you know, when you're when you're leading, when you're a conservative organization, you think you're in the middle, and the same thing is true with liberals. They all think they're in the middle, too. I think that's interesting. It doesn't make any difference who you are. Everybody thinks they're in the middle.
2: Everybody thinks they're right. That's right.
1: <laughs> and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but that, uh, you know, the thing that I've always enjoyed about the John Locke Foundation and uh, their folks that uh, work at the General Assembly is they do encourage dialogue, and um, generally speaking, always had an open mind on all issues, and sometimes come down on uh, what a lot of people would think is a more liberal position. So it's not just always a, a right wing conservative organization. Not at all. No. Um, as I said, they lean conservative, and so now we're, we're talking about leaning. Okay. So um, all right. So we had a finally a ruling from the North Carolina courts on the redistricting of House and Senate districts in the state of North Carolina. The congressional districts, that matter was settled earlier as far as the courts were concerned. So now we've got a uh, short window here to put the General Assembly to work to come up with redistricting.
2: Yeah, this was a little bit of a surprise. They have two weeks in which um, to come up with new legislative maps, and it affects just some of the legislative districts. But this is going to be um, kind of a heavy lift and a rush. Already there have been redistricting commission committee meeting set for early next week. Uh, They start that on Monday. So that process will begin. And, yeah, this three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals came down with this decision. The General Assembly, or at least Senator Berger, has said they are not going to appeal that decision. They are going to comply with the judgment that this three-judge panel made. And, yeah, two weeks they have to do these new districts. And part of that is to have this in place for the 2020 election elections. Um, filing for that begins in December, so it really is right around the corner. We think of the election of 2020 being so far off, but it really is right around the corner for, for North Carolina.
1: Uh, is two weeks a reasonable period of time? I mean,
2: Well, it seems awfully rushed to me because the court also said that they were going to have to have public hearings and input from the public and two weeks seem really rushed to get that kind of outreach organized and I don't know what that's going to look like as far as um, input from the public. Now of course these days with you know the internet and websites and those kind of things there's lots of avenues for people to access information and then to let their to express their views on it. Uh, But yeah two weeks seems like a very short time window but that's what they've got and the General Assembly's moving forward with that the what the judges have said.
1: So give us the uh, the condensed version, the Reader's Digest version, the uh, classic comic book version of uh, exactly what the court said they want them to do in this uh, in this redistricting process?
2: Well, what they said was that when they drew the districts in 2017, that there was too much partisan influence that was done as they drew those districts, and that districts were drawn to elect Republicans. Districts were drawn based on partisan criteria and that that is a violation of the state constitution. So they've come back to the general assembly and under our state constitution, Don, our general assembly is authorized and charged with drawing the districts for the congressional districts as well as the legislative districts. So that's why, I mean, it's it's in our constitution that it's their job. The court came back and said, you didn't do your job right, you're gonna have to redo it. And they designated some districts Um, in both the House and Senate that will have to be redrawn. They said that it's going to have to be done within two weeks. They said it's going to have to have public hearings. It said it's going to have to be done not behind closed doors, but out in the open. The actual drawing of the maps is going to have to be done. They said that incumbency could be taken under consideration. But other than that, they could not use past electoral history or voter registration or any of those par- any of that partisan information in drawing those districts.
1: Now, it, interesting that you said incumbency can be considered. That, that doesn't mean it has to be.
2: Right, but that to me was a little bit of, of you know, an incongruity in the That's, judge's decision that if it has to be totally nonpartisan, it seems to me that incumbency would be part of those things that could not be considered. So that was a b- bit of an odd twist. I thought
1: so too, because uh, that can make the job of being fair uh Uh, very difficult to do because if you're Preserving a district, then you've got to work around it.
2: And all of those incumbents are associated with one party or the other. Uh-huh. You know is the thing. But then the other thing that that now in North Carolina,
1: a person running for the Senate or a House has to live in the district. Yes. Now that's yes. not true with Congress. That's true.
2: Yes. Which is interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you want to run for the 13th district, you can live in the first district.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I've always thought that was kind of an interesting. We've twist never had as that well. to happen, mm-hmm. uh,
1: to my knowledge.
2: No, well, there's been some challenges to you know if yeah. particularly in the legislature legislative races if they live in those districts. But, you know, I'm not sure that it's ever been done. I don't, I don't know how what your campaign slogan would be to your constituents. I don't live in your district, but elect me anyway.
1: Well, what I was getting to, it would look like to me they would say, okay, if you're an incumbent and we change you and you don't happen to live in the district you want to run in, you can still run. Yeah, I don't think there's any allowance to change that rule. That would make the drawing of the lines a little easier. Right, yeah, if you didn't have
2: to consider, you know, where – Um, you know, Senator Curtis lives as you're drawing that district. Um, So they can consider that. But the other thing, Don, that the court did that, that I thought was very helpful is they set out the criteria for drawing the maps. I have long contended that the problem with this and the reason why we have all these lawsuits with the redistricting is because the rules are so... We just don't know what they are. Yeah. And the courts have not set down the clear rules. Um, I've always thought if the rules were clear with very little wiggle room, then it doesn't matter so much who draws the maps. It's the rules that are in place that do that. Um, and so this court has said they have to consider things like um, one man, one vote. So all of the districts have to be uh, represent about the same number. Uh, there's a little bit of... Um, wiggle room with that. But so it's a one man, one vote provision. They have to keep the districts compact. So you don't have those ones that look like snakes kind of things to the extent that they can keep them compact. Also respect county lines and city lines so that you keep those um, you know, in there. So the, the court did set out and reiterate some of the criteria, the standards that had previously been outlined in another redistricting case called the Stevenson case. So I think that's a good move that we have just a, a, another clear direction of here are the rules and you should comply with the rules as you're drawing these maps.
1: Well, I just, yesterday yesterday I happened to be doing a population study of the state of North Carolina. And it's so interesting how much of our population is in about 30 30 counties. And the other 70 counties um, make up, you know, roughly about 20% of the population. And so this is another factor that makes for some differences in districts, especially in the size of the territory that a, a, a member of the House or the Senate has to serve. Because uh, we've got some counties that have, well, uh, Tyrell County has 5,000 people. Uh, in the whole county
2: right and you see that and if you look at the um, you know if you look at the demographics over a period of time over 30 or 40 years and you see where the population has shifted more people are moving to the urban areas as they move around the state and then also people moving to north carolina across state lines are moving to the urban areas so those have become much more densely populated where done as you observe in the rural counties there's fewer and fewer people so what you have is again Again, going back to that one-man, one-vote provision, in the urban counties, there those districts are getting geographically smaller and smaller because there's more people that live there, where the rural counties are getting bigger and bigger uh, because there's fewer people that live there.
1: And actually, that puts the heat on the bigger counties because sometimes you, you get to a street and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, if we go across this street... Uh, we're going to be in violation of the size of the population or something and so some of the things that they were concerned about I think are going to be almost impossible in the larger districts smaller districts are going to be easier to do Mm -hmm. quite frankly.
2: Right and then on down the road what we're seeing with that is the representation and the questions that come before the entire body so in many cases some of these really heated discussions and real um, controversies about how to deal with these questions is not so much Republican and Democrat as it is urban and rural. Mm -hmm. Things like tax Sales tax distribution, um, money that goes to school, school construction is another one, highways and where we put the roads and those kind of things. Yeah. You know, the very different needs in these different districts, and the representation of those have changed. And as you mentioned, with this redistricting and these new maps, that is going to be, be a factor, and I think we'll see it even more so with these new maps.
1: Well, it's it's, it's an interesting situation as North Carolina continues to grow in those 30 or so counties that are representing so much of the population continue to expand and grow very rapidly and the other counties in many cases are actually losing population and that compounds the problem long term so it is a problem and yet uh, uh you know the the state has the obligation and the responsibility to uh, serve the entire state and that creates problems right well uh we've got uh sort of coming to the end of this se- this uh, segment of uh, Carolina Newsmakers. We're going to talk about the North Carolina economy in general, uh, job growth, unemployment, personal income, and so forth. We're going to do that in the next segment. Our guest is Becky Gray. She is uh, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, and uh, we are uh, uh, going to return right after these messages.
0: When we get old, Will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore?
1: Of course.
0: We'll find a way. Are you gonna take care of me if I can't see anymore?
2: I'll read to you every day.
0: And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call one 800 437 2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. one 800 437 2423
2: I can help the next customer
0: over here. Oh, thank you. Hi. Wow, that's a lot of books. Let's see. How to keep your child safe. Childproofing your home. Childproofing your yard. Childproofing your in-laws home and yard well I'm guessing you have a little one at home
2: yeah well it looks like you must take good care of her oh thank you
0: now let's see parents guide to safe toys that's a really good one parents guide to safe foods parents guide to safe safety products parents guide to parenting guides don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and other safety tips
2: of all parents. the things you can read about keeping your child
0: safe the most important is attached to the back of their car seat Read the instruction manual and learn to use the latch system. It makes it easier to be sure your child's car seat is installed correctly. Parents guide to telling other parents how to raise their kids. To learn more, go
2: to safercar.gov. Anchor, tether, latch, the next generation of child safety. A message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ed Council.
0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with Becky Gray, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. Uh, Becky is, uh, has been on our program a number of times, and she's been with the Locke Foundation. How long have you been with the Locke Foundation?
2: About 10 years. And they
1: said you couldn't yeah. keep a job. I know, yeah, I
2: know. So. Well, I told you, nobody else wants my job. I work with politicians all day.
1: <laughs> well, um, okay, I'm going I'm to leave that one alone. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, and, uh, of course, you've been a frequent guest on Tom Campbell's North Carolina SPIN program for a number of times, a number of years as well. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the North Carolina economy in general and how this affects the legislature. Uh, you know, all, everybody is always concerned about job growth and uh, one of the things that uh, we always worry about is getting our fair share of new industry. And one of the things that always comes into play is this matter of incentives. We are fighting with other states uh, for industry and so that puts the pressure on incentives lot of controversy about incentives for a long time because if you're making gadgets gid- and a new company comes in, they get incentives. The people who have been paying taxes for years are actually punished uh, in a way because they don't get the, uh, the benefit of uh, a tax break. That's uh, one of the issues that's always bothered me a lot about incentives. On the other hand, we're forced into it because South Carolina and Virginia and Georgia and all the other states are doing it.
2: Well, that doesn't make it right. You know, it's, but, as your mother yeah, used yeah. to tell you, know, if everybody else was jumping off a bridge, would you, would you do that? It, it doesn't make it right. It
1: looks like to me this is something Congress always do. They always just say, look, tax incentives are just not legal.
2: Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The other thing that we could do, you meant – you know, we are not competing with Oregon and Washington State and Nevada for these things. We're no. com- you know, as you mentioned, we're competing with Virginia, South Carolina. So, you know, even if we did a regional compact – It wouldn't have to be the whole country, but even those of us in the Southeast went together and said, you know what, we're going to sell our region as the best place in the state to come and do business and then compete among ourselves with lower tax rates, with fewer regulation, with just the natural resources that we have. Those kind of things would certainly be a better way to do it than when government is really taking a risk with taxpayer money by betting on a particular industry or in many cases a particular company. Uh, But this does seem to go on. But Don, one thing that we've seen, some improvements over the years, if you're going to do this, and again, I don't think it's a good idea to do it at all, but if you're going to do it to put more accountability into place and do things like perhaps instead of, for example, instead of just handing taxpayer cash over to a company to come, what if you did an exit um, off of the highway? Or put some infrastructure in place that would benefit that company. Then, if something happens, the company picks up and leaves. You still have an asset. You being the, ta- yes, the taxpayers, yeah. you have an asset that would have value to someone else that perhaps would draw them to take up that particular piece of property. So there's, you know, there's ways to do it. Doing some of these as grants rather than just giveaway projects, so that in the budget process, it is determined by our elected officials. Okay, this is how much money we're going to give for this particular industry. They did this with the film incentives a couple years ago, where rather than just having it embedded in the tax code, they put it in a grant program. I think it was $15 million the first year, so that we as taxpayers and people that are trying to keep up with the budget know this is how much money we have. There's a competitive grant process that goes into place so that we have some oversight as to who's getting that money. Still, I'd rather see none of that going on and just take all of that money, put it into community colleges for workforce training, um, offer a lower tax rate, roll regulations back, and then open the doors to North Carolina and say, come and compete for the, the best business environment that we can possibly provide.
1: So, how are we doing as far as our overall economic growth in North Carolina? Are we keeping pace? Are we on line with uh, what we can afford and what we need?
2: actually our economy is doing great and has been for a number of years as the country was coming out of that recession of 2009 um, North Carolina has re- recovered quite well and just for example in 2011 when we were going through the budget process there was a 650 million dollar shortfall in that budget and over the years with I believe some of the policies that have been been put into place that have really grown our economy things like, tax reductions, really transforming our tax system, really reducing regulation, making smarter investments in education and infrastructure, doing those kind of things has really led to unprecedented economic growth where we have low unemployment. Uh, Businesses are coming to North Carolina, are growing, more people are working. All of those things are good now. A lot of that is the national sweep coming out of the um, coming out of the recession. But North Carolina is doing quite well, and I think it's key to remember that in order to do this, in order to continue this economic growth, we need to continue on the path we're on with these policies that have been put into place.
1: So uh, we've got uh, this whole economic situation going pretty well. Uh, how does the tariff battle that uh, is going on on the, on the federal level uh, especially with China? How does that affect North Carolina and what, uh, Consequences might we face if this goes on much longer?
2: Well, you know, we don't really know the answer to that because a lot of this is just being implemented or in many cases talked about, but there's tremendous concern with um, manufacturing, with what's left of manufacturing in North Carolina, with some of the new manufacturing that we have with pharmaceuticals and those kind of things. Um, many of the, the goods that we produce in North Carolina with automobile parts and those kind of things done. There's a real concern about it. And then particularly with our farmers, there's a, a real concern yep. with the tariffs and the trade on the food items. You know, agriculture is still the number one business in North Carolina. And we've taken such tremendous hits over the last several years just with the weather related things. So there's a real concern within the agriculture and the farming community on this. So it's certainly not something to be taken lightly. And um, North if we, if we are We're not the state that would have the greatest impact. It would certainly have impacts on us, and there's a lot of concern across North Carolina on this.
1: One of the truly interesting things, and I don't think we we are as thankful for this as we should be and have never really appreciated it, but I don't know of another state that suffered, could have gotten through the transition we had in North Carolina moving from textiles, tobacco manufacturing, and furniture. We lost all three of those industries and yet, we have grown. Uh, you take uh, the automobile industry in Michigan; it was devastating. They they didn't find a replacement. But uh, uh, it, it's fascinating that we have continued to grow despite losing our three big major backbone industries from the from the 80, '70s and '80s in that period of time. It's incredible.
2: It is incredible, and you know part of that is the replacement with. Um, Higher-paying jobs. Higher-paying yeah. jobs. The biotechnology um, companies with the pharmaceutical companies and the support for that, the research and development. Uh, you know, just look at the Research Triangle Park yeah. and how that has grown and the companies are coming in for that. Um, some of these venture capital um, things And, you know, Don, this didn't happen by accident. This is decades of strong leadership. And I would argue that really what is responsible for that in a lot of ways is the great work that the universities have done and the resource that our university system has been. Well, I was going to um, say has that, been. That we
1: have always put great emphasis. I mean, we, we went to the community college system in the 1960s, early 1960s, and uh, – We have always put a major emphasis on the higher education in North Carolina, and it has paid off in in, uh, CHIPs. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yep. And so, and this this is the kind of leadership and the emphasis that we place on education in North Carolina. Fifty seven percent of our state budget, and that has been the percentage has been pretty consistent over the years, um, has gone to education. So we have always highly valued that, and I think that's one reason for you know as you mentioned this resurgence that we've been able to to have with some of these um, venture capital companies and opportunities, investments that are coming out of NC State and Chapel Hill and I mean look at the hospitals and the medical research that we're doing it's just you're you're exactly right it is phenomenal
1: well uh, you know and looking ahead at the North Carolina economy we also have to look at the fact that uh, we also are in an area where people want to come to live uh, it is uh, um, a great state uh, it, you know we see the four seasons we have the mountains we have the coast the livability in North Carolina is something that is the envy of most of the nation.
2: Right. And, you know, I mean, talk to some of our recent transplants, people that have moved here from we New Jersey, for example. We call them Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> and we um, love we, our Yankees. We do. We do. But some of these folks, you know, who are moving here from the Northeast, um, you know, they're paying... Uh, Tens of thousands of dollars a year in property taxes, what they're what they're able to buy with their money when they come here. And then also the quality of life um, is great. And the, the job opportuni- opportunities that we have. Good education for kids and the job opportunities that we have. We're one of the fastest growing states in the country, the ninth largest state in the country. And as a matter of fact, we were talking earlier about redistricting and elections. It looks like in this next census, we will have at least one more con- congressional seat and maybe two, and maybe two. Yeah. so you know more representation in Raleigh so I, I, I think north carolina is a great place to live
1: well you know we we haven't talked about that uh, as much as maybe we should but north carolina is getting to be uh, sort of the, the the bellwether state because we are a purple state and we're up to, for play and uh, and now we're getting some size to the point where, I mean, almost every politician on the national level running for president has got to look to North Carolina and say, wait a minute, that's one state I've got to take. Right. Yeah. Uh, because uh, – uh, it is a bellwether state yeah uh, you know what was it is it Missouri we used to say as Missouri goes the show me state yeah Uh
2: huh. Um, and you know North Carolina still is a pretty moderate state yeah um, you know I mean we, we're kind of taken aback as we see some of the um, some of the arguments and discussions in the General Assembly some of the positions that the governor has taken um, we've always been a, a moderate state and so some of these positions that seem to be coming from the left and pulling things to the left, I'm not sure North Carolina is quite ready for that.
1: Well, it, 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 the uh, you know the, the the middle of the North Carolina probably has a little bit of liberalism in them and a little bit of conservatism in them at the same time, and that's we're not only purple in form of, of uh, registration, but we're probably. Pop- purple in our feelings and our ins- on issues and things
2: well and you know we have a long history I'm trouble
1: getting that out it just didn't want to come out of my mouth for some particular reason
2: but you know we've had a long history too of um, electing voting for a republican candidate for president and electing democrat governors so yes. you know I mean, it goes back and forth yeah
1: Our guest is Becky Gray, and we have one final segment coming up on Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll do that right after these messages.
0: I'm not staying home tonight. I'm at school all day. If they want me to do the work, give it to me while I'm at school. This guy has me coming to work 10 hours a day. So what if I didn't finish school? That doesn't mean he can work me like a dog. Hey, man, I need a few bucks. My car's busted, and I need some cash. Hello? Hello? Every decision you make has a benefit or a consequence. Make the right choices today, and be ready for the challenges tomorrow. This message is brought to you by the United States Air Force. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptusKids.org. Okay, here it goes. I know more about cooking dinner for a party of twelve than I do about packing a lunch for a twelve-year-old. I know kids like things like PB and J, pigs in a blanket. Oh, and fish sticks. They do love fish sticks. Filets I get, but sticks? What part of the fish does the stick come from? I know I can read a cookbook that'll tell me how to make a red wine reduction, but where are the cookbooks that can teach me how to cut the crusts off bologna sandwiches? Oh, maybe we can compromise on mac and cheese. Can you make that with brie? Everybody likes brie, right? You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to push your food around their plate. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: A reminder, this program on Carolina Newsmakers comes in two versions, hour, full-hour version, which actually has 40, uh, 45 minutes of content, and a half-hour version. A number of our affiliates carry the half-hour version. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the comments of our guest Becky Gray uh, and those other two segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments as well. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend or if you missed part of it, again carolinanewsmakers.com is where you can go and find uh, the program either in the segmented segments or in its entirety. Well, Becky Gray is our guest. She's Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. We've talked about the budget impasse and and, uh, again just briefly because some people may have joined us later uh, this is uh, something that is basically tied down to Medicare expansion while uh, we were talking about that we didn't really talk about the pros and cons of Medicaid expansion Give me a little bit of overview of why some folks think it's great and some folks think this is something we ought to skip.
2: Well, Don, the problem that we're trying to solve is that health care costs have continued to rise and have made health insurance unaffordable for some folks across North Carolina. These people that fall into sort of this gap population – make too much money to qualify for the subsidies offered under Obamacare, but they don't make enough to be able to afford health insurance. So that's kind of where this has come from. The governor has said, okay, well, we'll just expand Medicaid to all of those people. Uh, and it's, under his estimations, it's about 643,000 people who would fall into that gap population. Other states have done this with kind of mixed results. Um, One thing that we know in states that have expanded Medicaid is there are more people who end up enrolling in the program than was uh, anticipated. The costs are really pretty crippling for state budgets. According to the North Carolina General Assembly Fiscal Research, the Medicaid expansion as proposed by the governor would be six billion dollars for the first two years. It would increase our Medicaid spending by about 27 percent and would increase the entire state budget by seven percent. So that's really the that outlines the objections that the General Assembly has had is number one, the cost associated with it. And number two, the Medicaid system that we currently have is going through a transition. There are problems with that current Medicaid program that we have. Two million people, over 2 million people, are currently on Medicaid. Half the babies born in North Carolina are born under Medicaid coverage. And these are people who are low-income pregnant women, children, Elderly people, people with um, severe developmental disabilities, people who are suffering with severe substance abuse problems. And so many of us believe that we need to make sure that we take care of those people who qualify for the current Medicaid and that they are receiving the best care that they can before we add 637,000 or more people to an already fragile system. Now, Don, getting back to what the problem we're trying to solve is if health care costs are prohibiting people from being able to buy health insurance, let's look at ways to lower health care costs so that people then can afford health insurance and, and be able to purchase what best meets their needs. And there's a variety of ways to do that and things that are being proposed, things the General Assembly are considering, things like using more telemedicine, using more mid-level providers like nurse practitioners dental therapist, you know, some of those kind of things to increase the scope of let people practice within the scope of their training, but increase that access. Things like offering association health plans that actually just passed in the General Assembly to offer so that groups like the North Carolina Realtors, groups like the Farm Bureau, uh, retail merchants could come together and offer health insurance policies for their members. So there's a whole variety of things that could be done to lower the cost of health care. And many of us that have looked at this and done quite a bit of study and comparison across states think that that's the better way to go, to empower people to be able to buy the health insurance and to get the health care that they need and want, rather than extending a government program that still has a long way to go.
1: Now, I've been told by uh, some of my friends who really consider themselves liberal that even in the states that have the Medicaid expansion, they all look at it as a band-aid. They don't think it's gonna last
2: long. Right, and that's the problem that we have, and I think we're at a real crossroads um, in our country, and I think North Carolina could really be a model of, I think we're at a crossroads of, where are we gonna go with healthcare? Are we gonna go to complete government takeover of healthcare? Or are we going to move towards more patient-driven, individual, free-market solutions for health care? So we really are at a crossroads, and I think North Carolina is a good example of a state that can we, – we're going to have to choose one path or the other. If we go straight, we're going to go off a cliff.
1: Well, I was getting ready to say, you know, sometimes compromise can solve problems, and other times it just keeps you in the middle where you have the worst of both worlds instead of the best of one world sometimes that
2: happens. Right, but you know when in so many of these big public policy questions too, you know, there are real people who have, are affected by this.
1: Okay, so uh, you spend a lot of time at the General Assembly. Yes. Uh, and uh, they've got this uh, redistricting order that they've got to comply with in two weeks, uh, which is going to really be, uh, I don't understand how they can possibly do all the things that were requested in two weeks, but uh, There is a December 1 uh, sort of deadline, uh, ultimate deadline for sure. Uh, What do you think is going to happen on that and how quickly can we expect to see a redistricting plan
2: I think we'll see it within two weeks I think this is what the court has ordered in Senator Berger's reaction to this he has said you know en- enough is enough we've gone on we've had a decade of this litigation of things being up in the air it's time to put move forward and put this behind us I think they're going to do the best they can given the restrictions and comply with the court order and so i think i think that we will have this resolved i think these maps will be in place for the 2020 election but don let me tell you so that may be the good news the bad news is or the next piece of this, this will only be for one election. We have the census in 2020, (laughs) we're going to be back to this in full force in 2021, and we will draw districts again for the next 10 years. And I am guessing that whoever is in charge of the General Assembly and drawing those maps will proceed along those lines under some of this criteria that has been outlined by the courts and the other side will sue and we may be right back where we started with this.
1: Well if we could get a template maybe that won't be as difficult to happen uh, next time as it has been in the past.
2: Right and you know here's a key to this there is a bill in the General Assembly that would take those criteria as you mentioned those standards the rules that are laid out in this that have come from another court case that would put this into our state constitution so it would not be subject to the whim of a general assembly would not be it would be more, it would be in our constitution so it would be much harder to bring constitutional challenges if it's outlined in the constitution and i think that is the way that we need to go and at the end of this or, you know, after this two-week period, I hope that the General Assembly will move forward with that. And this has been bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats have said for years, we need to do something. We need to get rid of the, the, all the wiggle room, whether it's an independent commission. Again, I don't, I'm not sure an independent commission is the best idea. The best idea is to have the rules in place. And one way to do that would be to put this in our state constitution.
1: Becky, you uh, have answered that question extraordinarily well, and we appreciate you taking time to be with us on Carolina Newsmakers. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. And we look forward to having you back in, uh, perhaps in a couple of weeks and tell us what's going on at the General Assembly. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and He'll have another guest for us next week. Till next week, have a nice week.